Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing paediatric headaches in the emergency department. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording and all uh, guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Please remember other NHS Trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, teacher fellow in emergency medicine uh, at McDreamy. Uh, you can find me at Twitter. And once again, favourite paediatrician in the whole wide world. Oh, Jamie, you're too kind. <laughs> Dr. Colin Gilhooley, still not on Twitter. Uh, is here with his uh, with his jazzy polo shirt uh, to talk about. I had to dress up to come and do this. <laughs> you never know who's watching one of these podcasts. Well, there you go. Um, to talk about paediatric headaches in the emergency department. Absolutely. And we touched a little bit on this with Shana in our um, in our um, Head Smart Brain Tumor podcast a few weeks ago. Um, but obviously, it's not always down to brain tumors causing headaches. Luckily, thankfully. Yes. Um, so we're going to have a, a, a really good. Uh, approach to a, a, a child coming in with headache in the emergency department than common. Um, certainly in adults it's a very common presentation, much the same in children? Yeah it is, it is much the same in children um, and I think it's important to have a, an a approach and a, an appreciation of the different types of headache, how you classify them, um, because I think if you just tell the parents oh it's just a headache, don't worry about it, I'm not sure that's uh, particularly going to be very reassuring. Really reassuring but if you know the different types of headaches how they occur how they're classified um, and can give parents some clear advice and guidance um, then you're much more likely uh, to have a positive response uh, and the parents and family are more likely to be able to deal with it uh, and as such there are fewer returns to the emergency department uh, which is uh, something that is obviously helpful and benefit for both the patient the parents and ourselves as well mm, okay I suppose it could potentially be a similar approach as well if you're in general practice as well. So oh, definitely. Because you're both, it's all time critical, correct. it's all short time. This, this yeah. approach goes throughout, uh, absolutely. So it's just about being aware of how uh, headaches are classified in children and young people, having an idea about those different types, and then using them to, to form your, your diagnosis and your classification. Brilliant. Um, so how are they classified then? Let's jump in right at it. Well, um, so they tend to be classified as primary, mm-hmm. um, as or as a, a chronic headache, uh, and then there are some uh, secondary headaches as well. And then hopefully once we do them, uh, talk through those, we'll uh, talk about some treatments uh, and give people an idea of where they can get some further information. Brilliant. So our, our primary headaches then, Let, let's yeah. let's tackle so, them. So there's obviously quite a few uh, within these ones, so we'll, we'll probably spend most of our time going through these ones because I think they're the most common. Uh, there's migraine, um, so that's again split into with and without aura. Uh, and then there's uh, a separate diagnosis for chronic migraine um, and then uh, there is a diagnosis uh, in the international classification for uh, probable migraines as well and we'll touch on how you make those diagnoses in a little bit but also within primary headaches are tension uh, which can be episodic or chronic and then a new persistent daily headache uh, which again has specific classifications which can be found at www.ihs dash classification.org okay and you can download the specific ones there um, so if we go through migraine in children uh, as a starting point I think uh, people probably think of this as more of a, a diagnosis of, uh, of adults and it's mm. maybe it is easier uh, to make in adults um, and actually uh, 
in terms of it, in the general population, uh, by the age of about eight years, the prevalence uh, of uh, migraine is about 7%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that inc- uh, increases uh, into the kind of adolescent years up to around about 20% prevalence. Mm. And so it is common. It is common. And it's about twice as common in women as it is in men. Uh, and I don't think we really understand why that is. Uh, but that's certainly where we are. So migraine is a common diagnosis in children. Most of it's managed in primary care or mm. via the outpatient setting in paediatrics. Um, and it's important uh, because uh, it does have significant morbidity. Mm. So obviously it's painful. Mm. It leads to them being incapacitated often uh, and often there's associated symptoms like vomiting. And in childhood, this can be things like missing out on school, which can have a negative impact on their school performance, but also missing out on on activities and interactions with children of their age, uh, which can have uh, problems for their development. And not just for the child, if you think about the parents, the carers, uh, they then have to take time off work, uh, and that can have significant uh, financial uh, implications for them and for wider society. Slightly unusually, I guess, in children is that um, actually many of these aren't seen uh, or given medical attention. And so therefore the advice and treatment isn't quite given to them as you would expect. Um, And often there's a a concern uh, in primary care or in emergency care that um, the treatments that are used for migraine uh, would be off-label in paediatrics. Um, And that's a problem we have in paediatrics quite a lot. Most of the drugs don't have licences for children. It's like triptans. Yeah, so they've got some certain licences, but certainly not for the younger age groups. Okay. Uh, and it's something which the MRHA has been looking at, uh, but it's quite difficult uh, to get drug companies. Uh, they all have a, already have a licence for the drug. It's already making them money. And in relative speak, uh, the children with this condition are probably quite a small, yeah. small proportion. So it is, it is challenging to do. Um, um, but certainly our paediatric neurologists here have a very set protocol for how they management and certainly do prescribe uh, these medicines which are known to be effective in, in adults. In terms of migraine, it's obviously quite difficult to explain and there's obviously been multiple mm. um, theories put forward as to why they occur, um, whether it was vascular or uh, and a, a vascular spasm and those kind of things. More recently, uh, from my reading, it seems that that's, that's something that's not considered quite as uh, likely anymore and it's actually something that's probably more more to do with neuronal circuits within the central nervous system uh, and within them some kind of misfiring which causes causes significant pain mm. and it's likely that there's a mixture of genetic and environmental um, mm. issues that interplay there uh, to cause some people to have significant migraines um, and it's thought that within those neuronal complexes it's probably the trigeminal uh, cervical complex that's the, the, the main centre for it, um, where this kind of mixture of viral, environmental uh, things like stress, uh, maybe lack of sleep or problems with your internal co- clock uh, and other afferent stimuli, whether that be visual or audio, all interplay with these genetic predispositions in this complex uh, to cause significant headaches. Something which uh, I'm not massively familiar with, I must say, Jamie, mm-hmm. it's something which the neurologists, I'm sure, out there yeah. Could, could spend hours talking to me about. I think it's mixing migraine with a headache is a bit like um, 
confusing flu and a cold. Yes. They're of the same ilk, but completely different severities. Yes. And to, to dismiss a migraine as a, as a headache, like I said, is like dismissing a flu as a cold, or, you know. Anyway. So, coming back, so we've spoken there a little bit about what a migraine is and the potential how the mechanism for, for how the pain occurs. I think um, then looking specifically then at um, diagnostic criteria in children. So the first one was migraine without aura, okay? And so you have to have had at least five attacks, five or more attacks, okay? And the attack should, could last anything from four, to, four hours to three days. Three days? Three days. Which would obviously be horrible. <laughs> okay, so if you've had more than five attacks, uh, each attack lasting between four hours and three days, um, and then you have two or more of the following symptoms. So it's unilateral, mm -hmm. it's pulsating, it's moderate or severe in nature, and it's aggravated or it causes you to avoid physical activity. So any two of those four, so unilateral, pulsating, moderate or severe headache and is aggravated by or avoids physical activity then you would meet the diagnostic criteria for migraine. If you have five attacks lasting four to 72 hours and any one of the following two you also meet the diagnostic criteria. So nausea or vomiting and photo or phonophobia. Mm. Okay, so wanting to avoid those nut, uh, bright lights, going and sitting in a dark room, wanting it to be incredibly quiet and being upset by even quiet noise uh, would help you to meet the criteria. Um, and so that's without aura. So that, that's without that prodrome, the prodrome of flashing, flashing lights, lights exactly. anything like that, funny tastes, funny smells, anything like that, yeah. If you had those, yeah. Uh, then that would obviously bring you to migraine with aura. Yep. And for those, you only have to have had two attacks with those aura present and then with any kind of visual, sensory or dysphagic aura, any of those, so taste, uh, visual, auditory, any of those. Uh, if you have those plus two attacks um, and then you have a unilateral pain with the aura or the headache developing over longer than five minutes and it lasts for up to 60 minutes, then you can have migraine with aura. Okay, so it's obviously slightly different, uh, but the presence of an aura clearly tells you that the point with a headache is a stronger di diagnostic criteria, so it allows you to make that, that uh, so diagnosis quite quickly. You need fewer attacks to, to fulfill the classification. Absolutely. Okay, so what, what's about, so we've got a, Migraines with and without aura. What yeah. about this probable migraine then? Yeah, we're, we're so this is obviously a bit more of a challenging one. And so you look through it and you go through the criteria that we've talked about before. So if you look at the migraine without aura criteria and you go through it, so you've had those episodes lasting four to 72 hours and then you've got um, the unilateral pulsating features and then you've got the nausea and vomiting, which are in a slightly different group. If you meet if you meet three of those groups, but not the fourth group, i.e. if you had um, the headaches were lasting four to 72 hours, it was unilateral and pulsating, but you didn't have any evidence of nausea or vomiting, mm. then you'd be a probable, because okay. you, you meet three, of, three aspects of the criteria in terms of the number of attacks, the length of the headaches, 
and the and the associated features of the headache unilateral and pulsating but you don't meet the associated symptoms criteria of nausea okay. and vomiting um, and obviously if you had nausea and vomiting but you didn't meet the other criteria i.e. it wasn't unilateral or it wasn't pulsating then you could still be diagnosed with probable migraine so it's, it's meeting most of the criteria not quite but not all of them and so they're the main three types of migraine so migraine without aura migraine with aura and then probable migraine and I guess moving on from there from the primary headaches still in the primary headaches you'd move on to tension headaches and again spoke earlier they're split into episodic and chronic and obviously again there's a diagnostic criteria for these so episodic tension types you have to have had 10 or more episodes of a tension type headache but they have to be occurring less than 15 times a month Okay, and the reason for the less than 15 times a month is it put you into the chronic sure. one. So 10 or so episodes of episodic tension headache. And the headache should last anything from 30 minutes to 7 days. 7 days of a headache. So obviously a huge variation. Yeah. Okay. And with that, you should have two of the following. Okay. It should not be unilateral. It should not be pulsating. It should not be severe. And it should not change with exertion. Okay. So if you have two of those, then you can move on to the next criteria. And in that, there should be no nausea or vomiting and no photo or phonophobia. Okay, so no problems with bright lights, no problems with, with noise. And the reason for those are that if you start to have those diagnostic criteria, you head back towards the migraine group. Probable migraines. And yeah. Migraine. So episode, episodic tension headache is 10 or more episodes in the past, lasting 30 minutes to seven days. Uh, which is normally bilateral, not pulsating, not severe, not changed by exertion, with no evidence of nausea or vomiting, and no problems with bright lights or noise. Okay. And as I said, the chronic type follows a similar, similar diagnostic criteria, but you're having 15 episodes or more per month. Okay, which is obviously you can imagine could be quite debilitating uh, for the young person involved and luckily it's not as common in my as migraine mm. um, and so you can see there that you've got this migraine versus this tension type headache but that within the within the diagnostic criteria you can you can almost slightly slide through the gaps so there are there isn't a complete overlap between the two and it's important to have a look at those and you might have someone who's meets a lot of the criteria for both but not any one specific diagnosis. And in those, you'd probably talk about them having a mixed primary headache spectrum, so a mixed headache of migraine and tension types. Okay. Cool. Uh, so we've looked there at our primary headaches as our migraines versus our tension types. What's the next type of headache? We need so still within the primary headache subgroup, uh, there is this um, probably more more common uh, but it's a primary stabbing headache so patient gets a, se a series of stabbing this stabbing feeling usually in the frontal orbital or temporal regions uh, which lasts for a few seconds and can happen one to many times a day and there's no other symptoms whatsoever so it's this kind of stabbing pain lasting only a few seconds but occurring uh, often once or many times a day the thing about that is it's 
when it happens, it might debilitate them, but it's for a short period. Mm. But actually, in terms of their daily function, it doesn't cause them quite as many problems. And that's, uh, that's obviously uh, something which, I guess some of us have probably all experienced that stabbing headache that lasts a few seconds and then we just carry on with our lives. Mm. But it's the people who are having this repeatedly over many days um, that, that would get that diagnosis. Mm. And the next one, one that I think is probably well known in adults, is cluster headache. Mm. So in children, it's diagnosed as more than five attacks with severe or very severe pain, which is normally unilateral, either orbital or frontal, occasionally temporal in nature, but often around that front area of the brain, uh, which can last from 15 minutes to three hours um, and can sometimes just be one or two a day or can occur more frequently. And they often have associated symptoms like rhinorrhea, eyelid edema, facial swelling, ptosis, agitation, or lacrimation. So some kind of um, neurological probable discharge, some kind of abnormal either sympathetic or parasympathetic mm. associated effect, which is slightly unusual to go alongside them. So five attacks, very severe pain, often at the front of the head, around the orbits, or sometimes temporal in nature which is associated with uh, a runny nose, runny eye, swelling of the eye or part of the face, and occasionally with a, a ptosis, okay? Uh, and they can be incredibly debilit debilitating headaches. So I think being aware of this and being able to make that diagnosis can at least give them a diagnosis and uh, give them an idea about, about treatment. Mm. Brilliant. So I think now we're essentially we're moving on now into the, the chronic headache yeah. uh, side of things now. So obviously here we're looking at just more frequent attacks over a longer period of time, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, two possible diagnoses. One is it's happened in 15 days in one month or it's been going on for more than three months. And again, these can be split into the, uh, it can be more of a migraine type chronic headache or it can be more of a tension type chronic headache uh, or even just a persistent headache that's, that occurs every day. And within this group, it's important to note those who've been uh, having medicines for a long time every day, you can get a medicines overuse headache. Uh, and they are obviously quite an unusual but quite a difficult group to cheat because you have to tell them not to take them anymore, to stop them, and that, that will improve their headaches. Um, these are obviously quite debilitating for the person involved because of their frequency, so their, their life is markedly affected. And in terms of the diagnostic criteria, um, apart from the increased frequency or the ongoing prolonged history, the diagnostic criteria are fairly similar. So mm. it's a chronic migraine type uh, if they meet that di diagnostic criteria we've described, or it's a tension type if they meet those diagnostic criteria. Just a quick note on the medication over overuse. It's important in those to have a have a look and to talk to them and to find out what they're using. So. If you'll find they're using combination agents, opiates or triptans more than 10 days a month, or if they're using more simple painkillers like paracetamol or NSAIDs for more than 15 days a month, then they're the ones who are at risk of a, of a medication overuse headache. And with those, uh, it's a worth um, talking to them about, about this and about its potential to be making their headaches worse in terms of the medications. Obviously, if you tell them to stop taking everything straight away, they're unlikely um, to 
um, to agree with that. So it's important to have a conversation with them, perhaps talk to them about how they can mm. reduce their medication use over time and their reliance on it and find other ways. Uh, that might be physical treatments um, for them to do, um, which could be helpful. Um, but don't just tell them to stop taking everything straight away because they're unlikely to do that. Okay, I guess we've talked about all the primary headaches there. So we've talked about primary headaches in terms of migraines, uh, in terms of tension headaches, cluster headaches, and then we've kind of had a look at uh, what the chronic group involves. Um, but I guess something that probably goes with, more with Shana in the podcast we talked about is secondary headache. Uh, and in this one, you need to consider uh, what are the potential causes of the secondary headache and when do you need to refer to someone. So Shana gave us a great talk about head smart and the red flags that have been identified. Um, and I'll just, I'll just add something to that in terms of uh, risk stratification. Mm. So if you have someone who comes in with a headache, their risk of it having a secondary cause depends on where they're seen. Okay. So GPs or in the paediatric outpatients, it's about 1% chance. Whereas in the emergency department, if someone's taken the time to come to the emergency department because of their headache, that risk is much higher. And it's in some studies, it's been reported at around 10%. So um, you have to appreciate that uh, when we're seeing children, children in the emergency department with a significant headache and parents have brought them for a headache, there is, there's potentially a one in 10 chance that this is a significant underlying condition that's causing their headache. And so you have to be aware of what the red flags are. Mm. And I'd advise you, if you're not sure about those, to go to HeadSmart. Uh, if you just type in HeadSmart into Google, you'll be taken to their website and you'll be able to go through and learn about all those red flags. And there's a, uh, there's a blog at takeorally.com based on HeadSmart and our podcast as well. And when I say secondary headache, just to, to talk about the things uh, I'm worried about, so brain tumours are one of those things, but also some of them will have potential other causes of raised intracranial pressure which haven't yet been, been identified. That might be benign intracranial hypertension, or sorry, idiopathic intracranial hypertension as it's, as it's now caused. Uh, it might be um, that they have had a trauma, it might be that they've got an underlying dosis, diagnosis that hasn't been made yet. Um, and in children, the things we think about, things like neurofibromatosis uh, or tuberous sclerosis, uh, which are reasonably rare individually, but if you add up all the potential conditions, then, then they become a little bit more common. Uh, things that are really are red flag is, a, is a, the first headache, never had a headache before, and they've got this sudden onset headache, and it's made them come to the emergency department. That, that's quite unusual. Or they've known to have headaches, but this one is much, much worse than it's ever been or that it's changed. And I think there's nothing special about these red flags for children. These are the same in adults. Uh, if you have suddenly changing or a sudden increase in frequency of headaches, uh, then you need to just take a very detailed history and consider whether it could be associated with a underlying potential significant condition. And a few more things would be the timing of the headache. So we always taught this. I think we've been taught this all the way through medical school, mm. right through to now. If your headache is worse in the morning, uh, if it wakes you from night, uh, then you need to consider a more significant uh, underlying cause. Um, and obviously if there's any kind of things that maybe coughing, bending, straining make your headache worse, then that would obviously be something that needs to be considered as a red flag as well. Um, so 
there's quite a lot there, but just a few more uh, would be vomiting and obviously focal neurology and a decreased GCS would be obvious signs. So these are your barn door red flags. Barn door red flags. I think that if you've got any of those, it obviously points you to, to the need for neuroimaging. Um, I don't know how, how you are, Jamie, at uh, fundoscopy. Well, as, a, as an ophthalmologist once said to me on the phone, don't bother, you, you, uh, you, will, um, you won't be able to do it, and if you can do it, you won't understand what you're looking at. Um, um, yeah, I won't mention names. <laughs> Bit controversial, that one. Um, yes. I, I could be better at it. And I think that's something I'm sure we could all, all of feel us. that, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I try and make sure I look in as many children's eyes as I can when I see them, regardless of how, how high risk I, I think they might be. For two reasons, one, I don't want to miss anything, and two, because I want to keep my skills up. Um, but we're very lucky in the in here at Queen's Medical Centre, we've got an eye casualty just round the corner who are happy to see these children um, in the most part um, and look after them very well. Um, and so um, perhaps we don't do it as much as we should, but I think the key thing is that they, the back of their eye should be looked at by someone who's competent to do so. Um, and so they're probably most of the red, red flags, Jamie. I don't know. If yeah, so uh, I think the, the, the barn door ones isn't it, and you know the the severe, the new headache, the headache that wakes you up, headache with vomiting, headache worse in the morning, uh, personality changes as well goes into all of that. Very it's much very so. Important. Question I always like to ask in school age children is about their handwriting as well. Um, so has their handwriting got worse? Just because it's an incredibly dexterous thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you've got to have good hand-eye coordination. Um, you're writing in a small area. So suddenly if you're finding it more difficult to write, I find mm. that a good discerning question. That's very good. Good tip there. So we've all talked really about the history. We've talked about uh, the presentation. Uh, we're doctors. We want to help our patients. Uh, so how, we, how do we treat? Yeah, so I think obviously headache can be something that's very hard to treat. In an ideal world, all of us would like just to be able to take it away and it never be there. Mm. But unfortunately, with a lot of these headaches, with migraines, with cluster headaches, with uh, chronic headaches, um, what we need to be aware of is that they are likely to recur or come back. And so what we have to do is make sure we're not only trying to use medications to treat it, but also we're trying to give people coping, coping mechanisms and, and help to get, to get through these, to make sure that they are functional, can go to school, uh, can take part in activities that they want to. And so from that point of view, I think whenever you're seeing these people, it's important uh, to get an idea of what their worries, their concerns are, what their expectations are. If you've got an idea of that, then you can, you can help them uh, to manage them and move them forward. Things that uh, are used quite a lot in children's outpatients are actually uh, headache uh, histories and headache diaries, so people can see when they're occurring, have maybe have an understanding of is there something that does bring them on? Are they stress related? Are they related to something else? And then that can help them prepare and understand when it's going to be and how they can perhaps avoid those situations if possible. Um, it's important to make sure that you don't miss anything. So you do examine them thoroughly, check for those secondary headaches and those risk factors. Um, and then to look at factors that might be making it worse. So um, have the, are they eating regularly? Are they eating well? Are they exercising regularly? Are they sleeping? Are they having a good night's sleep? Have they got good sleep hygiene? So unfortunately in today's modern world, technology has given us many wonderful things, like these podcasts for instance. Um, but um, it also has given us the ability to have a screen everywhere. 
And so more and more we're finding children who are up on their screens late at night, not having a good night's sleep. And that ongoing chronic tiredness and chronic lack of sleep is something that can predispose you to headaches. So looking at those things, keeping a headache diary and a sleep diary can be helpful. And then having a look uh, at other things, other psychosocial issues. So uh, at school, is there, are there concerns at school? Is there problems at school? Are they struggling at school for any reason? Are they being bullied? Uh, have they got difficulties at school? Have they got an underlying dosis of something like dyslexia, for instance, which mm. is actually making it much harder for them to read, so they're having to concentrate much harder on that. Having an idea of those things can be helpful, and having finding ways of addressing those um, can be helpful. And then and in the home life, you know, are there conflicts at home? Are there problems at home that perhaps haven't been addressed that are increasing the stress in the household, but as well as for the child? And could that be something that's bringing on the headaches? And hopefully by addressing all of those issues, you might be able to put in some, some support in place that might reduce the need for, for medications per se. Mm. Obviously that's difficult in the emergency department uh, to put in the help and support for those kind of things, but asking the questions and having an idea about them can al allow them to be discussed with the GP or the health visitor or the school nurse, which might help uh, in the child's ongoing uh, follow-up. But in terms of for specific treatments, in terms of medications for specific headaches, I guess probably start with migraine. We've shown how common it is with a prevalence of kind of 20 to 25% uh, around the, the teenage years. Um, it's important for them to have an idea of what works for them. So speaking about what they do mm. and encouraging them, you know, sit down in dark room if that's what they need to do making sure they relax, making sure they avoid triggers. So keeping a diary there so they can spot the triggers is key. Um, and then thinking about preventative treatment. Um, so in terms of acute drug treatment for migraine, um, we often talk about simple analgesia. So that might be enough for some people. So paracetamol or ibuprofen. Others might need a triptan. Uh, so sumatriptan is something that is used in children and is prescribed for, for the management of acute migraine in children. And then the consideration if there's a lot of nausea or vomiting associated to whether an antiemetic could be useful. And so things like chlorperazine or domperidone, even metoclopramide, are used in the acute management of migraine. So I think simple analgesia, if that's effective, is great. Paracetamol, ibuprofen, uh, atriptan can be used. Uh, but it's important to have a look and see whether they're working for the child and to constantly be thinking about the diagnosis every time you you see them, that's not something you'll perhaps see in ED. Mm. And perhaps in ED you wouldn't be thinking about suddenly starting them on a tryptin and giving them an anti-emetic, mm. um, but it's something you could be uh, speaking to the GP about. Uh, and if they're not comfortable doing those things, they can refer into the children's outpatients department. In terms of other treatments, there are a huge number that have been used and have had different levels of effectiveness in different children. And I think a lot of these agents are one that I wouldn't necessarily think that we'd be looking at in ED, and certainly probably not in primary care either. So topiramate, even Valproate and gabapentin have been used at times, pisotifen uh, being given at bedtime. Um, they're things that should probably be reserved for the paediatric outpatients department. Mm. But if children are on these drugs, um, that's probably why. So they probably have been prescribed, and their efficacy is, is always hard to know. So good research in children is, is always challenging because children are inherently well so there tends to be reasonably fewer, fewer of these children around compared to in adulthood 
um, and hopefully it's something where we'll get better with time. In terms of more chronic headaches, they can be incredibly difficult to, to treat and I think in those ones, um, they're the ones I'd say would probably benefit from good sleep and headache diaries. So you're making sure that you're avoiding any triggers, you're reducing stress in your life, you're getting mm. good night's sleep. It's much more likely that they'll benefit from those things than they will from, from treatment. That's not to say that paracetamol and ibuprofen can't be used when the headache's very severe, but I think that uh, there's a lot of social factors that can be improved and they'll probably lead to an improved headache more so than medications. Um, and they're probably uh, the main treatments that I'd probably talk about today, Jamie. I don't think there's uh, there's much more. So I think migraines, consider simple analgesia, consider a triptan. Uh, if if you need to, refer into, into secondary care to the paediatric outpatients if that's not working and they can try some other agents. And for chronic headaches, really look at sleep hygiene mm. uh, and avoiding triggers and reducing stress to help to help improve them. Have you is uh, is there a role for high flow oxygen if you've got a child having uh, acute migraine attack in front of you? In your experience, um, so um, in terms of acute migraine, it's certainly something that's been touted, and I think it's something that's used in adults. Is that is yeah, that we do. Yeah, so um, um, you I'm stick not sure on the fifteen. Obviously, not if they've got something that you can't see COPD, yeah. but you know, young person otherwise well. 15 litres, sit in a dark room for a bit, and obviously you give them aspirin and yeah. a, a, a tripton as well, but yeah, it, it, there is some evidence. Yeah. So it's not something I don't think is well evidenced as in children, but that's not to say, I think that's probably just because of a lack of evidence, not because it's got a, it doesn't work. It's certainly something in, in cluster headache um, that is definitely effective. So in a really severe cluster headache when someone comes in, oxygen and a triptan, uh, seem to be very effective in, in that group. So I think um, given that we probably think that this is all a, a neuronal complex discharge and that they probably have a similar etiology, there's probably some evidence that it, it would be effective. Okay. And the NICE guidelines for um, headache in, uh, in um, 12 years and older and young people, uh, well, it, NICE is uh, CG150 uh, for headache and that, that includes young people aged 12 years and older. Um, which we'll, we'll put a link up uh, there on the the, uh, the Take Orally website as well and on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you very much once again, Colin. Thank you. Thanks for having me again, Jamie. It's been a jazzy polo shirt. Well, as I said, a dress up, Jamie. A dress up. <laughs> you never know who's watching a podcast. Absolutely. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Bye bye, Colin. Bye bye. That was the Take Orally he um, Pediatric Headache in the Emergency Department podcast. Um, for more information, you can find uh, a blog and the podcast at uh, takeorally.com. Um, you can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities in emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.